0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, a great story from Jack London called The Heathen. This action-packed short story by Jack London was first published in Everybody's Magazine in 1910 and tells the story of a pearl buyer named Charlie who has a passenger on a scooter named the Petite John Sailing from Ranjura, New Zealand, to Tahiti with a Kanaka crew, manages to barely survive a hurricane with the help of a crewman named O2O, and they become fast friends. This story digs deep into the cultural issues that divide us and reminds us that when facing adversity, our differences matter little, and we all become brothers. At least, that's the hopeful outcome. In a 2006 collection of stories by Jack London, including The Heathen, the editors offer this comment. In the early 1940s, when this story found its way into fiction anthologies and high school textbooks, this story was admired for its fiercely detailed picture of a storm at sea and for its courageous examination of a friendship that transcended cultural and racial differences. It is nowadays impossible for us to read the account of the friendship between Charlie and Otuo so simply. The article goes on to say, By the 1970s, as editors began to see the complexity of the ideas about race embedded in The Heathen, it simply became easier to drop the story from collections altogether. I'll leave it to you listeners to sort that one out and decide whether or not this story should be left out of story collections. As all of you know, I believe great short stories give us a window to the past and the way people thought and acted then. They give us true insights into history. And more often than not, we find that the world 100 years ago isn't all that different from today when it comes to people. "'And, I have to add, I tend to see the good side of people. "'And both sides are always out there.' "'And now, The Heathen, by Jack London. "'I met him first in a hurricane, "'and though we had gone through the hurricane on the same schooner, "'it was not until the schooner had gone to pieces under us "'that I first laid eyes on him. "'Without doubt I had seen him with the rest of the Kanaka crew on board, "'but I had not consciously been aware of his existence, "'for the petite Jean was rather overcrowded.' In addition to her eight or ten Kanaka seamen, her white captain, mate, and supercargo, and her six cabin passengers, she sailed from Rangiora with something like eighty-five deck passengers—Pomotans and Tahitians, men, women, and children, each with a trade box. To say nothing of sleeping mats, blankets, and clothes bundles. The purling season in the Pomotus was over, and all hands were returning to Tahiti. The six of us cabin passengers were pearl buyers. Two were Americans, one was Atchun, the whitest Chinese I've ever known. One was a German, one was a Polish Jew, and I completed the half-dozen. It had been a prosperous season. Not one of us had cause for complaint, nor one of the eighty-five deck passengers either. All had done well, and all were looking forward to a rest-off and a good time in Papiti. Of course, the Petit Jean was overloaded. She was only seventy tons, and she had no right to carry a tithe of the mob she had on board. Beneath her hatches she was crammed and jammed with pearl shell and copra. Even the trade room was packed full of shell. It was a miracle that the sailors could work her. There was no moving about the decks. They simply climbed back and forth along the rails. In the nighttime they walked upon the sleepers, who carpeted the deck. I'll swear, too deep. Oh, and there were pigs and chickens on deck and sacks of yams while every conceivable place was festooned with strings of drinking coconuts and bunches of bananas on both sides between the fore and main shrouds guides had been stretched just low enough for the forebroom to swing clear and from each of these guys at least 50 bunches of bananas were suspended it promised to be a messy passage even if we did make it in the two or three days that would have been required if the southeast trades had been blowing fresh but they weren't blowing fresh "'After the first five hours, the trade died away in a dozen or so gasping fans. "'The calm continued all that night, and the next day, "'one of those glaring, glassy calms, "'when the very thought of opening one's eyes to look at it is sufficient to cause a headache. "'The second day, a man died, an Easter Islander, "'one of the best divers that season in the lagoon. "'Smallpox, that's what it was, "'though how smallpox could come on board?' when there had been no known cases ashore when we left Ranjura, is beyond me. There it was, though, smallpox, a man dead, and three others down on their backs. There was nothing we could do. We could not segregate the sick, nor could we care for them. We were packed like sardines. There was nothing to do but rot or die. That is, there was nothing to do after the night that followed the first death. On that night, the mate, the supercargo, the Polish Jew— "'and four native divers sneaked away in the large whale-boat. "'They were never heard of again. "'In the morning the captain promptly scuttled the remaining boats. "'And there we were. Nobody would leave. "'That day there were two deaths, the following day three. "'Then it jumped to eight. "'It was curious to see how we took it. "'The natives, for instance, fell into a condition of dumb, stolid fear. "'The captain, douce his name was, a Frenchman, became very nervous and voluble. He actually got the twitches. He was a large, fleshy man, weighing at least two hundred pounds, and he quickly became a faithful representation of a quivering jelly mountain of fat. The German, the two Americans, and myself bought up all the scotch whiskey and proceeded to stay drunk. The theory was beautiful, namely, if we kept ourselves soaked in alcohol. "'Every smallpox germ that came into contact with us "'would immediately be scorched to a cinder. "'And the theory worked, "'although I must confess that neither Captain Oduce "'nor Achun were attacked by the disease either. "'The Frenchman did not drink at all, "'while Achun restricted himself to one drink daily. "'It was a pretty time. "'The sun, going into northern declination, "'was straight overhead. "'There was no wind, except for frequent squalls, "'which blew fiercely.' for from five minutes to half an hour, and wound up by deluging us with rain. After each squall, the awful sun would come out, drawing clouds of steam from the soaked decks. The steam was not nice. It was the vapor of death, freighted with millions and millions of germs. We always took another drink when we saw it going up from the dead and dying, and usually we took two or three more drinks, mixing them exceptionally stiff.' "'Also we made it a rule to take an additional several "'each time they hove the dead over to the sharks "'that swarmed about us. "'We had a week of it, and then the whiskey gave out. "'It's just as well, or I shouldn't be alive now. "'It took a sober man to pull through what followed, "'as you will see when I mention the little fact "'that only two men did pull through. "'The other man was a heathen, "'at least that was what I heard Captain O'Douche call him "'at the moment I first became aware of the heathen's existence.' call click or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done discover why critics are calling kingdom of the planet of the apes the best film of the franchise what a wonderful day it's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible i need to go hang on It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now, our story, The Heathen, continues. It was at the end of the week, with the whiskey gone and the pearl buyers sober, that I happened to glance at the barometer that hung in the cabin companionway. Its normal register in the pomodus was 29.90, and it was quite customary to see it vacillate between 29.85 and 30, or even 30.05, but to see it as I saw it, down to 29.62, was sufficient to sober the most drunken pearl buyer that ever incinerated smallpox microbes in Scotch whiskey. I called Captain Oduce's attention to it, only to be informed that he had watched it going down for several hours. There was little to do, but that little he did very well, considering the circumstances. He took off the light sails, shortened right down to storm canvas, spread lifelines, and waited for the wind. His mistake lay in what he did after the wind came. He hove to on the port tack, which was the right thing to do south of the equator, if, and there was the rub, if they were not in the direct path of the hurricane. We were in the direct path. I could see that by the steady increase of the wind and the equally steady fall of the barometer. I wanted him to turn and run with the wind on the port quarter until the barometer ceased falling, and then to heave to. We argued till he was reduced to hysteria, but Budge he would not. The worst of it was that I could not get the rest of the pearl buyers to back me up. Who was I, anyway, to know more about the sea and its ways than a properly qualified captain?' Was what was in their minds. I knew. Of course, the sea rose with the wind frightfully, and I shall never forget the first three seas the Petite Jeanne shipped. She had fallen off, as vessels do at times when hove to, and the first sea made a clean breach. The life-lines were only for the strong and well, and little good were they even for them when the women and children, the bananas and coconuts, the pigs and trade boxes, the sick and the dying were swept along in a solid screeching, groaning mass. The second sea filled the petite Jeanne's decks flush with the rails, and as her stern sank down and her bow tossed skyward, all the miserable dunnage of life and luggage poured aft. It was a human torrent. They came head first, feet first, sidewise, rolling over and over, twisting, squirming, writhing, and crumpling up, "'Now and again one caught a grip of a stanchion or a rope, "'but the weight of the bodies behind tore their grips loose. "'One man I noticed fetch up, head on and square on, "'with the starboard bit. "'His head cracked like an egg. "'I saw what was coming, sprang on top of the cabin, "'and from there into the mainsail itself. "'Achoon and one of the Americans tried to follow me, "'but I was one jump ahead of them. "'The American was swept away and over the stern like a piece of shaft.' Achun caught a spoke of the wheel and swung in behind it. But a strapping Rarotonga Vahin, woman, she must have weighed two hundred and fifty, brought up against him and got an arm around his neck. He clutched the Kanaka steersman with his other hand, and just at that moment the schooner flung down to starboard. The rush of bodies and sea that was coming along the port runway between the cabin and the rail turned abruptly and poured to starboard. Away they went. Vahin, Achun, and steersman, and I swear I saw Achun grin at me with philosophic resignation as he cleared the rail and went under. The third sea, the biggest of the three, did not do so much damage. By the time it arrived, nearly everybody was in the rigging. On deck, perhaps a dozen gasping, half-drowned and half-stunned wretches were rolling about or attempting to crawl into safety. They went by the board, as did the wreckage of the two remaining boats." The other pearl-buyers and myself, between seas, managed to get about fifteen women and children into the cabin and battened down. Little good it did the poor creatures in the end. Wind? Out of all my experience I could not have believed it possible for the wind to blow as it did. There is no describing it. How can one describe a nightmare? It was the same way with that wind. It tore the clothes off our bodies. I say tore them off. And I mean it. I'm not asking you to believe it. I'm merely telling something that I saw and felt. There are times when I do not believe it myself. I went through it, and that's enough. One could not face that wind and live. It was a monstrous thing, and the most monstrous thing about it was that it increased and continued to increase. Imagine countless millions and billions of tons of sand. Imagine the sand tearing along at ninety, a hundred, a hundred and twenty, or any other number of miles per hour. Imagine further this sand to be invisible, impalpable, yet to retain all the weight and density of sand. Do all this, and you may get a vague inkling of what that wind was like. Perhaps sand is not the right comparison. Consider it mud, invisible, impalpable, but heavy as mud. "'Nay, it goes beyond that. "'Consider every molecule of air "'to be a mud-bank in itself. "'Then try to imagine "'the multitudinous impact of mud-banks. "'Ah, it's too hard for me. "'And I went through it. "'Language may be adequate "'to express the ordinary conditions of life, "'but it cannot possibly express "'any of the conditions "'of so enormous a blast of wind. "'It would have been better "'had I stuck by my original intention "'of not attempting a description at all. "'I will say this much.' the sea, which had risen at first, was beaten down by that wind. More, it seemed as if the whole ocean had been sucked up into the maw of the hurricane, and hurled on through that portion of space which previously had been occupied by the air. Of course, our canvas had gone long before. But Captain Eau Deuce had on the Petite Jean something I had never before seen on a South Sea schooner—a sea-anchor. It was a conical canvas bag— the mouth of which was kept open by a huge hoop of iron. The sea-anchor was bridled something like a kite, so that it bit into the water as the kite bites into the air, but with a difference. The sea-anchor remained just under the surface of the ocean in a perpendicular position. A long line, in turn, connected it with the schooner. As a result, the petite Jean rode bow onto the wind and to what sea there was." The situation really would have been favorable had we not been in the path of the storm. True, the wind itself tore our canvas out of the gaskets, jerked out our topmast, and made a raffle of our running gear. But still we would have come through nicely had we not been square in front of the advancing storm center. That was what fixed us. I was in a state of stunned, numbed, paralyzed collapse from enduring the impact of the wind, and I think I was just about ready to give up and die when the center smote us. The blow we received was an absolute lull. There was not a breath of air. The effect on one was sickening. Remember that for hours we had been at terrific muscular tension, withstanding the awful pressure of that wind, and then, suddenly, the pressure was removed. I know that I felt as though I was about to expand, to fly apart in all directions. It seemed as if every atom composing my body was repelling every other atom, and was on the verge of rushing off irresistibly into space. But that lasted only for a moment. Destruction was upon us. In the absence of the wind and pressure, the sea rose. It jumped. It leaped. It soared straight towards the clouds. Remember, from every point of the compass, that inconceivable wind was blowing in toward the center of calm. The result was that the sea sprang up from every point of the compass— There was no wind to check them. They popped up like corks released from the bottom of a pail of water. There was no system to them, no stability. They were hollow, maniacal seas. They were eighty feet high, at the least. They were not seas at all. They resembled no sea a man had ever seen. They were splashes, monstrous splashes, that is all. Splashes that were eighty feet high. Eighty! They were more than eighty— "'They went over our mastheads. "'They were sprouts, explosions. "'They were drunken. "'They fell anywhere, anyhow. "'They jostled one another. "'They collided. "'They rushed together and collapsed upon one another, "'or fell apart like a thousand waterfalls, all at once. "'It was no ocean that any man had ever dreamed of, "'that hurricane center. "'It was confusion thrice confounded. "'It was anarchy. "'It was a hell pit of seawater gone mad.' The Petit Jeanne? I don't know. The heathen told me afterward that he did not know. She was literally torn apart, ripped wide open, beaten into a pulp, smashed into kindling wood. Annihilated. When I came to, I was in the water, swimming automatically, though I was about two-thirds drowned. How I got there I had no recollection." I remembered seeing the petite Jean fly to pieces at what must have been the instant that my own consciousness was buffeted out of me. But there I was, with nothing to do but make the best of it, and in that best there was little promise. The wind was blowing again, the sea was much smaller and more regular, and I knew that I had passed through the center. Fortunately, there were no sharks about. The hurricane had dissipated the ravenous horde that had surrounded the death ship and fed off the dead." It was about midday when the petite Jeanne went to pieces, and it must have been two hours afterward when I picked up with one of her hatch covers. Thick rain was driving at the time, and it was the merest chance that flung me and the hatch cover together. A short length of line was trailing from the rope handle, and I knew that I was good for the day at least, if the sharks did not return. Three hours later, possibly a little longer, sticking close to the cover— and with closed eyes, concentrating my whole soul upon the task of breathing in enough air to keep me going, and at the same time of avoiding breathing in enough water to drown me. It seemed to me that I heard voices. The rain had ceased, and wind and sea were easing marvelously. Not twenty feet away from me, on another hatch cover, were Captain Oduce and the heathen. They were fighting over the possession of the cover. At least, the Frenchman was. "'Pain noir!' I HEARD THE CAPTAIN SCREAM, AND AT THE SAME TIME I SAW HIM KICK THE KANAKA. NOW CAPTAIN ODEUS HAD LOST ALL HIS CLOTHES, EXCEPT HIS SHOES, AND THEY WERE HEAVY BROKENS. IT WAS A CRUEL BLOW, FOR IT CAUGHT THE HEATHEN ON THE MOUTH AND THE POINT OF THE CHIN, HALF STUNNING HIM. I LOOKED FOR HIM TO RETALIATE, BUT HE CONTENTED HIMSELF WITH SWIMMING ABOUT FORLORNLY a safe TEN FEET AWAY. WHENEVER A FLING OF THE SEA THREW HIM CLOSER, THE FRENCHMAN, HANGING ON WITH HIS HANDS, KICKED OUT AT HIM WITH BOTH FEET. Also at the moment of delivering each kick he called the Kanaka a black heathen. For two cents I'd come over there and drown you, you white beast, I yelled. The only reason I did not go was that I felt too tired. The very thought of the effort to swim over was nauseating. So I called the Kanaka to come to me and proceeded to share the hatch cover with him. Otuo, he told me his name was, pronounced O-two-O. Also he told me that he was a native of Bora Bora. "'the most westerly of the society group. "'As I learned afterward, "'he had got the hatch cover first, "'and after some time encountering Captain O'Douce, "'had offered to share it with him, "'and had been kicked off for his pains. "'And that was how Otoo and I first came together. "'He was no fighter. "'He was all sweetness and gentleness, "'a love creature, "'though he stood nearly six feet tall "'and was muscled like a gladiator. "'He was no fighter, "'but he was also no coward. "'He had the heart of a lion,' "'and in the years that followed I've seen him run risks "'that I would never dream of taking. "'What I mean is that while he was no fighter "'and while he always avoided precipitating a row, "'he never ran away from trouble when it started. "'And it was where shoal when once O'Tua went into action. "'I shall never forget what he did to Bill King. "'It occurred in German Samoa. "'Bill King was hailed the champion heavyweight of the American Navy. "'He was a big brute of a man, a veritable gorilla. "'one of those hard-hitting, roughhousing chaps, "'and clever with his fists as well. "'He picked the quarrel, "'and he kicked Otuo twice "'and struck him once "'before Otuo felt it to be necessary to fight. "'I don't think it lasted four minutes, "'at the end of which time "'Bill King was the unhappy possessor "'of four broken ribs, "'a broken forearm, "'and a dislocated shoulder blade. "'Otuo knew nothing of scientific boxing. "'He was merely a manhandler.' and Bill King was something like three months in recovering from the bit of manhandling he received that afternoon on Appia Beach. But I'm running ahead of my yarn. We shared the hatch cover between us. We took turn and turn about, one lying flat on the cover and resting, while the other, submerged to the neck, merely held on with his hands. For two days and nights, spell and spell, on the cover and in the water, we drifted over the ocean. Toward the last I was delirious most of the time. And there were times, too, when I heard Otuo babbling and raving in his native tongue. Our continuous immersion prevented us from dying of thirst, although the seawater and the sunshine gave us the prettiest imaginable combination of salt, pickle, and sunburn. In the end, Otuo saved my life, for I came to, lying on the beach twenty feet from the water, sheltered from the sun by a couple of coconut leaves." "'No one but Otuo could have dragged me there "'and stuck up the leaves for shade. "'He was lying beside me. "'I went off again, and the next time I came around "'it was a cool and starry night, "'and Otuo pressing a drinking coconut to my lips. "'We were the sole survivors of the Petite Jean. "'Captain O'Duse must have succumbed to exhaustion, "'for several days later his hatch cover "'drifted ashore without him. "'Otuo and I lived with the natives of the atoll for a week, when we were rescued by a French cruiser and taken to Tahiti. In the meantime, however, we had performed a ceremony of exchanging names. In the South Seas, such a ceremony binds two men closer together than blood brothership. The initiative had been mine, and Otuo was rapturously delighted when I suggested it. "'It is well,' he said, in Tahitian, "'for we have been mates together for two days on the lips of death.' "'Death must have stuttered,' I smiled." "'It was a brave deed you did, master,' he replied, "'and death was not vile enough to speak. "'Why do you master me?' I demanded, "'with a show of hurt feelings. "'We have exchanged names. "'To me, you are now Otuo. "'To you, I am now Charlie. "'It is the way of the custom. "'And when we die, if it does happen that we live again "'somewhere beyond the stars in the sky, "'still shall you be—' O to O to me, and I, Charlie, to you, whenever I think of myself, I shall think of you whenever men call me by name, I shall think of you, and beyond the sky and beyond the stars, always and forever, you shall be o to o to me. Is it well, master? I hid my smile and answered that it was well. "'We parted at Papiti. "'I remained ashore to recuperate, "'and he went on in a cutter to his own island, Bora Bora. six weeks later, he was back. "'I was surprised, for he had told me of his wife "'and said that he was returning to her "'and would give up sailing on far voyages. "'Where do you go, master?' he asked, "'after our first greetings. "'I shrugged my shoulders. "'It was a hard question. "'All the world,' was my answer. "'All the world,' all the sea, and all the islands that are in the sea. "'I shall go with you,' he said simply. "'My wife is dead.'" I never had a brother, but from what I have seen of other men's brothers, I doubt if any man ever had a brother that was to him what Otuo was to me. He was brother and father and mother as well. At this I know. I lived a straighter and better man because of Otuo. I cared little for other men, but I had to live straight in Otuo's eyes. Because of him I dared not tarnish myself. He made me his ideal, compounding me, I fear, chiefly out of his own love and worship, and there were times when I stood close to the steep pitch of hell, and would have taken the plunge had not the thought of Otuo restrained me. His pride in me entered into me, until it became one of the major rules in my personal code to do nothing that would diminish that pride of his." Naturally, I did not learn right away what his feelings were toward me. He never criticized, never censured, and slowly the exalted place I held in his eyes dawned upon me, and slowly I grew to comprehend the hurt I could inflict upon him by being anything less than my best. For seventeen years we were together. For seventeen years he was at my shoulder, watching while I slept, nursing me through fever and wounds, aye, and receiving wounds and fighting for me. He signed on the same ships with me, "'and together we ranged the Pacific from Hawaii to Sydney Head "'and from Torres Straits to the Galapagos. "'We blackbirded from the New Hebrides and the Lion Islands "'over to the westward, clear through the Louisades, "'New Britain, New Ireland, and New Hanover. "'We were wrecked three times in the Gilberts, "'in the Santa Cruz group, and in the Fijis, "'and we traded and salved wherever a dollar promised "'in the way of pearl and pearl shell,' "'Copra, Bech de Mer, hawk Turtleshell, "'and Stranded wrecks. "'It began in Papiti "'immediately after his announcement "'that he was going with me over all the sea "'and the islands in the midst thereof. "'There was a club in those days "'in Papiti where the pearlers, "'traders, captains, and riff-raff "'of South Sea adventurers foregathered. "'The play ran high, "'and the drink ran high, "'and I am very much afraid that I kept "'later hours than were becoming or proper.' No matter what the hour was when I left the club, there was O'Toole waiting to see me safely home. At first I smiled. Next I chided him. Then I told him flatly that I stood in need of no wet nursing. After that, I did not see him when I came out of the club. Quite by accident, a week or so later, I discovered that he still saw me home, lurking across the street among the shadows of the mango trees. What could I do? I know what I did do. "'Insensibly I began to keep better hours. "'On wet and stormy nights, "'in the thick of the folly and the fun, "'the thought would persist in coming to me "'of Otuo keeping his dreary vigil "'under the dripping mangoes. "'Truly, he had made a better man of me, "'yet he was not straight-laced, "'and he knew nothing of common Christian morality. "'All the people on Bora Bora were Christians, "'but he was a heathen, "'the only unbeliever on the island, "'a gross materialist, who believed that when he died, he was dead. He believed merely in fair play and square dealing. Petty meanness, in his code, was almost as serious as wanton homicide, and I do believe that he respected a murderer more than a man given to small practices. Otuo had my welfare always at heart. He thought ahead for me, weighed my plans, and took a greater interest in them than I did myself. At first, "'When I was unaware of this interest of his in my affairs, "'he had to divine my intentions, "'as, for instance, at Papiti, "'when I contemplated going partners "'with a knavish fellow countryman on a guano venture. "'I did not know he was a knave, "'nor did any white man in Papiti. "'Neither did Otuo know. "'But he saw how thick we were getting, "'and found out for me, and without my asking him. "'Native sailors from the ends of the seas "'knock about on the beach in Tahiti.' "'and Otuo, suspicious merely, "'went among them till he had gathered sufficient data "'to justify his suspicions. "'Oh, it was a nice history, that of Randolph Waters. "'I couldn't believe it when Otuo first narrated it, "'but when I sheeted it home to Waters, "'he gave in without a murmur "'and got away on the first steamer to Auckland. "'At first, I am free to confess, "'I couldn't help resenting Otuo's poking his nose into my business, "'but I knew that he was wholly unselfish.' and soon I had to acknowledge his wisdom and discretion. He had his eyes open always to my main chance, and he was both keen-sighted and far-sighted. In time he became my counselor, until he knew more of my business than I did myself. He really had my interest at heart more than I did. Mine was the magnificent carelessness of youth, for I preferred romance to dollars, and adventure to a comfortable billet with all night in. So it was well that I had someone to look out for me, I know that if it had not been for Otuo, I wouldn't be here today. Of numerous instances, let me give one. I'd had some experience in blackbirding before I went pearling in the Pomotus. Otuo and I were in Samoa. We really were on the beach and hard of ground, when my chance came to go as recruiter on a blackbird brig. Otuo signed on before the mast, and for the next half-dozen years, in his many ships, we knocked about the wildest portions of Melanesia. "'Otuo saw to it that he always pulled stroke oar in my boat. "'Our custom in recruiting labor was to land the recruiter on the beach. "'The covering boat always lay on its oars several hundred feet offshore, "'while the recruiter's boat, also lying on its oars, "'kept afloat on the edge of the beach. "'When I landed with my trade goods, leaving my steering sweep a-peak, "'Otuo left his stroke position and came into the stern sheets, "'where a Winchester lay ready to hand under a flap of canvas.' "'The boat's crew was also armed, "'the sniders concealed under canvas flaps "'that ran the length of the gunnels. "'While I was busy arguing "'and persuading the wooly headed cannibals "'to come and labor on the Queensland plantations, "'O'Toole kept watch. "'And often and often "'his low voice warned me of suspicious actions "'and impending treachery. "'Sometimes it was the quick shot from his rifle, "'knocking a savage over, "'that was the first warning I received. "'And in my rush to the boat, "'His hand was always there to jerk me flying aboard. "'Once, I remember, on Santa Ana, "'the boat grounded just as the trouble began. "'The covering boat was dashing to our assistance, "'but the several score of savages "'would have wiped us out before it arrived. "'Otuo took a flying leap ashore, "'dug both hands into the trade goods, "'and scattered tobacco, beads, tomahawks, "'knives, and calicoes in all directions. "'This was too much for the woolly heads. "'While they scrambled for the treasures,' THE BOAT WAS SHOVED CLEAR, AND WE WERE ABOARD AND FORTY FEET AWAY, AND I GOT THIRTY RECRUITS OFF THAT VERY BEACH IN THE NEXT FOUR HOURS. THE PARTICULAR INSTANCE I HAVE IN MIND WAS ON Malaita, THE MOST SAVAGE ISLAND IN THE EASTERLY SOLOMONS. THE NATIVES HAVE BEEN REMARKABLY FRIENDLY, AND HOW WE WERE TO KNOW THAT THE WHOLE VILLAGE HAD BEEN TAKING UP A COLLECTION OVER TWO YEARS WITH WHICH TO BUY A WHITE MAN'S HEAD? THE BEGGARS ARE ALL HEADHUNTERS, AND THEY ESPECIALLY esteem A WHITE MAN'S HEAD. "'The fellow who captured the head "'would receive the whole collection. "'As I say, they appeared very friendly, "'and on this day I was fully "'a hundred yards down the beach from the boat. "'Otoo had cautioned me, "'and, as usual, when I did not heed him, "'I came to grief. "'The first I knew, "'a cloud of spears sailed out of the mangrove swamp at me. "'At least a dozen were sticking into me. "'I started to run, "'but tripped over one that was fast in my calf, "'and I went down, The woolly heads made a run for me, each with a long-handled, fan-tailed tomahawk with which to hack off my head. They were so eager for the prize that they got in one another's way. In the confusion, I avoided several hacks by throwing myself right and left on the sand. Then Otuo arrived, Otuo the manhandler. In some way, he had got hold of a heavy war club, and at close quarters it was a far more efficient weapon than a rifle. He was right in the thick of them, so that they could not spear him, while their tomahawks seemed worse than useless. He was fighting for me, and he was in a true berserker rage. The way he handled that club was amazing. Their skulls squashed like overripe oranges. It was not until he had driven them back, picked me up in his arms, and started to run that he received his first wounds. He arrived in the boat with four spear thrusts, got his Winchester, and with it got a man for every shot. "'Then we pulled aboard the schooner and doctored up. Seventeen years we were together. "'He made me. "'I should today be a supercargo, a recruiter, "'or a memory, if it had not been for him. "'You spend your money, and you go out and get more,' he said one day. "'It is easy to get money now. "'But when you get old, your money will be spent, "'and you will not be able to go out and get more. "'I know, Master.' "'I've studied the way of white men. "'On the beaches are many old men "'who were young once, "'and who could get money just like you. "'Now they're old, and they have nothing, "'and they wait about for the young men like you "'to come ashore and buy drinks for them. "'The black boy is a slave on the plantations. "'He gets twenty dollars a year. "'He works hard. "'The overseer does not work hard. "'He rides a horse and watches the black boy work. "'He gets twelve hundred dollars a year.' I am a sailor on the schooner. I get fifteen dollars a month. That is because I am a good sailor. I work hard. The captain has a double awning and drinks beer out of long bottles. I've never seen him haul a rope or pull an oar. He gets one hundred and fifty dollars a month. I am a sailor. He is a navigator. Master, I think it would be very good for you to know navigation. O'Toole spurred me on to it. He sailed with me as a second mate on my first schooner, and he was far prouder of my command than I was myself. Later on it was, The captain is well paid, master, but the ship is in his keeping, and he's never free from the burden. It is the owner who is better paid, the owner who sits ashore with many servants and turns his money over. True, I said, but a schooner costs five thousand dollars, an old schooner at that, I objected. "'It should be—I should be an old man before I saved $5,000.' "'There'd be short ways for Wade men to make money,' he went on, "'pointing ashore at the coconut-fringed beach, "'picking up a cargo of ivory nuts along the east coast of Guadalcanar. "'Between this river-mouth and the next, it is two miles,' he said. "'The flat land runs far back. It is worth nothing now. "'Next year? Who knows? Or the year after?' Men will pay much money for that land. The anchorage is good. Big steamers can lie close up. You can buy the land four miles deep from the old chief for 10,000 sticks of tobacco, 10 bottles of square face, and a Snyder, which will cost you maybe a $100. Then you place the deed with the commissioner, and the next year, or the year after, you sell and become the owner of a ship. I followed his lead, and his words came true though in three years instead of two. Next came the grasslands deal on Guadalcanar, 20,000 acres on a governmental 999 years lease at a nominal sum. I owned the lease for precisely 90 days when I sold it to a company for half a fortune. Always it was Otuo who looked ahead and saw the opportunity. He was responsible for the salving of the Doncaster, brought in at auction for a 100 pounds and clearing 3,000 after every expense was paid. HE LED ME INTO THE SAVAI PLANTATION AND THE COCOA VENTURE ON Upolu. WE DID NOT GO SEAFARING SO MUCH AS IN THE OLD DAYS. I WAS TOO WELL OFF. I MARRIED, and MY STANDARD OF LIVING ROSE, BUT Otuo REMAINED THE SAME OLD-TIME Otuo, MOVING ABOUT THE HOUSE OR TRAILING TO THE OFFICE, HIS WOODEN PIPE IN HIS MOUTH, A SHILLING UNDERSHIRT ON HIS BACK, AND A FOUR SHILLING LAVA LAVA ABOUT HIS LOINS. I COULD NOT GET HIM TO SPEND MONEY. There was no way of repaying him except with love, and God knows he got that in full measure from all of us. The children worshipped him, and if he had been spoilable, my wife would surely have been his undoing. The children! He really was the one who showed them the way of their feet in the world practical. He began by teaching them to walk. He sat up with them when they were sick. One by one, when they were scarcely toddlers, he took them down to the lagoon and made them into amphibians. HE TAUGHT THEM MORE THAN I EVER KNEW OF THE HABITS OF FISH AND THE WAYS OF CATCHING THEM. IN THE BUSH, IT WAS THE SAME THING. AT SEVEN, TOM KNEW MORE woodcraft THAN I EVER DREAMED EXISTED. AT SIX, MARY WENT OVER THE SLIDING ROCK WITHOUT A QUIVER, AND I'VE SEEN STRONG MEN BALK AT THAT FEET. AND WHEN FRANK HAD JUST TURNED SIX, HE COULD BRING UP SHILLINGS FROM THE BOTTOM THREE FATHOMS. MY PEOPLE IN BORA, Bora DO NOT LIKE HEATHEN. THEY ARE ALL CHRISTIANS. "'And I do not like Bora Bora Christians,' he said one day, "'when I, with the idea of getting him to spend some of the money that was rightfully his, "'had been trying to persuade him to make a visit to his own island in one of our schooners, "'a special voyage which I had hoped to make a record-breaker in the matter of prodigal expense. "'I say one of our schooners, though legally at the time they belonged to me. "'I struggled long with him to enter into partnership. "'We have been partners from the day the petite jean went down.' he said at last. But if your heart so wishes, then shall we become partners by the law. I have no work to do, yet are my expenses large. I drink and eat and smoke in plenty. It costs much, I know. I do not pay for the playing of billiards, for I play on your table. But still the money goes. Fishing on the reef is only a rich man's pleasure. It is shocking the cost of hooks and cotton line. Yes, "'It is necessary that we be partners by the law. "'I need the money. "'I shall get it from the head clerk in the office.' "'So the papers were made out and recorded. "'A year later I was compelled to complain. "'As brothers, we always called each other by our own names. "'Charlie,' said I, "'you're a wicked old fraud, "'a miserly skinflint, "'a miserable land crab. "'Behold, your share for the year "'and all our partnership has been thousands of dollars.' "'The head clerk has given me this paper. "'It says that in the entire year "'you've drawn just eighty-seven dollars and twenty cents. "'Is there any owing me?' he asked anxiously. "'I tell you, thousands and thousands. I answered. "'His face brightened, as with an immense relief. "'It is well,' he said. "'See that the head clerk keeps good account of it. "'When I want it, I shall want it, "'and there must not be a cent missing.' "'If there is,' he added fiercely, after a pause, "'it must come out of the clerk's wages. "'And all the time, as I afterward learned, "'his will, drawn up by Carruthers, "'and making me sole beneficiary, "'lay in the American consul's safe. "'But the end came, "'as the end must come to all human associations. "'It occurred in the Solomons, "'where our wildest work had been done in the wild young days, "'and where we were once more, principally on a holiday,' "'incidentally, to look after our holdings on Florida Island "'and to look over the purling possibilities of the Maboli Pass. "'We were lying at Savo, having run into trade for curios. "'Now Savo is alive with sharks. "'The custom of the woolly heads of burying their dead in the sea "'did not tend to discourage the sharks from making the adjacent waters a hangout. "'It was my luck to be coming aboard in a tiny, overloaded, native canoe "'when the thing capsized.' "'There were four woolly heads and myself in it, "'or rather, hanging to it. "'The schooner was a hundred yards away. "'I was just hailing for a boat "'when one of the woolly heads began to scream. "'Holding on to the end of the canoe, "'both he and that portion of the canoe "'were dragged under several times. "'Then he loosed his clutch and disappeared. "'A shark had got him. "'The three remaining savages tried to climb out of the water "'upon the bottom of the canoe. "'I yelled and struck at the nearest with my fist.' but it was no use. They were in a blind funk. The canoe could barely have supported one of them. Under the three it upended and rolled sideways, throwing them back into the water. I abandoned the canoe and started to swim toward the schooner, expecting to be picked up by the boat before I got there. One of the savages elected to come with me, and we swam along silently, side by side, now and again putting our faces into the water and peering about for sharks. "'The screams of the man who stayed by the canoe "'informed us that he was taken. "'I was peering into the water "'when I saw a big shark pass directly beneath me. "'He was fully sixteen feet in length. "'I saw the whole thing. "'He got the willy head by the middle, "'and away he went, the poor devil, "'head, shoulders and arms out of the water all the time, "'screeching in a heartrending way. "'He was carried along in this fashion for several hundred feet "'when he was dragged beneath the surface.' "'I swam doggedly on, hoping that that was the last unattached shark. "'But there was another. "'Whether it was the one that had attacked the natives earlier, "'or whether it was one that had made a good meal elsewhere, I do not know. "'At any rate, he was in not such a haste as the others. "'I could not swim so rapidly now, "'for a large part of my effort was devoted to keeping track of him. "'I was watching him when he made his first attack. "'By good luck I got both hands on his nose.' "'and though his momentum nearly shoved me under, "'I managed to keep him off. "'He veered clear and began circling about again. "'A second time I escaped him by the same maneuver. "'The third rush was a miss on both sides. "'He sheered at the moment my hand should have landed on his nose, "'but his sandpaper hide. "'I had on a sleeveless undershirt, "'scraped the skin off one arm from elbow to shoulder. "'By this time I was played out and gave up hope.' The schooner was still two hundred feet away. My face was in the water, and I was watching him maneuver for another attempt when I saw a brown body pass between us. It was Otuo. Swim for the schooner, master, he said, and he spoke gaily as though the affair was a mere lark. I know sharks. The shark is my brother. I obeyed, swimming slowly on, while Otuo swam about me, keeping always between me and the shark, foiling his rushes and encouraging me. "'The Davit tackle carried away, and they are rigging the falls,' he explained, a minute or so later, and then went under to head off another attack. "'By the time the schooner was thirty feet away, I was about done for. I could scarcely move. They were heaving lines at us from on board, but they continually fell short. The shark, finding that it was receiving no hurt, had become bolder. Several times it nearly got me, but each time Otoa was there just the moment before it was too late.' Of course, O'Toole could have saved himself at any time, but he stuck by me. "'Good-bye, Charlie. I'm finished!' i just managed to gasp. I knew that the end had come, and that the next moment I should throw up my hands and go down. But O'Toole laughed in my face, saying, "'I will show you a new trick. I will make that shark feel sick.' He dropped in behind me, where the shark was preparing to come at me. "'A little more to the left!' he next called out. "'There is a line there on the water. To the left, Master. To your left!' I changed my course and struck out blindly. I was by that time barely conscious. As my hand closed on the line, I heard an exclamation from on board. I turned and looked. There was no sign of Otuo. The next instant he broke surface. Both hands were off at the wrist, the stumps spouting blood. "'Otuo!' he called softly. "'and I could see in his gaze the love that thrilled in his voice. "'Then, and then only, at the very last of all our years, "'he called me by that name. "'Good-bye, Otuo!' he called. "'Then he was dragged under, and I was hauled aboard, "'where I fainted in the captain's arms. "'And so passed Otuo, who saved me and made me a man, "'and who saved me in the end. "'We met in the maw of a hurricane— and parted in the maw of a shark, with seventeen intervening years of comradeship, the like of which, I dare to assert, has never befallen two men, the one brown and the other white. If Jehovah be from his high place watching every sparrow fall, not the least in his kingdom shall be Otuo, the one heathen of Bora Bora. I hope you enjoyed this powerful story, The Heathen, by Jack London. We always appreciate reviews, So if you have a moment, if you're an Apple listener, we appreciate your sending us a kind review. We also appreciate our supporters at Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. For about the cost of a blended cup of coffee, you can help 1001stories make it to 2001stories. And thanks to you, we're well on the way. Pardon, pardon my voice this morning. Recently, we received this review for 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and I wanted to share it with you listeners. Here's the review. Named Good to Great. Four stars. I really like this podcast, but can you do less stories from the communist, Jack London? Don't cut it out. Just less. Down from Jerry Cunningham, Apple Podcast, U.S. And Jerry, I wanted to give you my opinion on Jack London's socialism. In my belief, he was not a communist, but I'm not going to waste 5,000 words parsing the differences. He did declare himself a socialist, and neither you nor I have any leanings toward socialism in the form it takes today in America. By narrating his works, which focus on rugged independence and courage in the face of adversity, my goal is to spread his idea that 1. the strong survive, 2. the survivors are, for the most part, rugged individualists who take action when action is required." Almost a century ago, London wrote a book called The Iron Heel. He was by then 30 years old, and he had made his pile, with an income from writing roughly equivalent to that of some of Hollywood's biggest actors. The Iron Heel was his attempt to consolidate his ideas about the struggle between the working class and the looming specter, as he saw it, of capitalism. Why good writers and Hollywood actors feel the need to endorse equality of outcome for all men using their public platforms to do it is a mystery to me. But maybe it can be explained in the fact that once they've become hugely successful, they feel compassion for the have-nots and also see the value of securing their loyalty and business. They may also feel the need to show some real idealist thinker muscle in order to show that they're more than just purveyors of creative entertainment. Who knows? We're all different. That's what makes the world go round. George Orwell would later say that the Iron Heel inspired 1984 and the Animal Farm... And maybe in a way it did. However, nineteen eighty four, as I recall, described every man as being trapped in a totalitarian regime which allowed zero freedoms and was ruled by mandates and cameras twenty four seven. The times in which Jack London wrote were seeing the spread of socialism around the world, and many will agree today that socialism has broken many more countries than built them in the hundred years since. The rise of the working man and the fight for the level playing field is a good fight and that was where London's idealistic passions lay. But in his book of fiction, Iron Heel, he predicted a fall of the American Republic after a bloody conflict between a capitalist government and a rising lower class. In his view, the lower class wins, the lower class ends up going underground, the middle class disappears. Today, maybe not as I write this, but in better economies of the recent past, the lower classes and middle classes have been rising dramatically, along with the standard of living... And the Republic still stands. Jack London's stories of adventure still entertain. His book The Iron Heel and The Spectre of Socialism are still out there. But the appeal is measured. And socialism has taken on many more faces and masks in the century since. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different types of people. The labor movement has made huge gains in 100 years. Millennials today, for instance, expect full retirement five weeks of vacation yearly, guaranteed promotion, and all kinds of leave when desired. And many get it. But for the most part, in any situation regarding work, the cream still rises to the top through smarts, education, and effort. There are exceptions, of course, but even Jack London would have to agree that in our capitalist society today, we've built the most successful economy in the world, and most people, health and God willing, have a chance to carve out a nice life for themselves, and the strong will survive. Thank you for sending the review, and thank you for sharing with me, and thank you for listening to our shows. We appreciate it. Jack London will still be around, but so will a lot of other great authors in the weeks, months, and years to come. Thanks for being a part of our journey. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.